Well, on June 28th of this year, a group of folks who were protesters gathered in St. Louis, Missouri, primarily people of color. They gathered because of what the mayor had done. Her name is Lydia Crusen, and she's seen here. Uh, Lydia um, has ideas of a certain issue. Some folks have ideas of a different issue, the other side of it. And so what she did was they had written a letter. She went on TV, she read the letter, and then she read aloud the names of the people who had signed the letter. And you know what else she did? She read their home addresses. And what happened, to be no surprise, in this hate-filled society that we live in, those folks whose names and addresses she read, they got death threats at their homes. Well, as a result, the folks pointed it out to her, what was happening, and you know what, she was unapologetic. She didn't seem to care. So on June 28th, they thought, well, let's all gather and we'll march to her house and we'll ask her to resign. Well, the deal was is that she lives in a gated community. So when they got to the gate, depending on who you believe, depending on who you listen to, um, what happened was the, um, either they were let in, which there's no video evidence to prove that, or they um, were um, breaking down the gate, and there's no video evidence to prove that, or they just walked through the gate that was unlocked. Well, the first house on the right then was owned by a couple who came out to confront them. I want to be clear, I am not gonna dignify this couple by mentioning their names. As they walked by the house, the folks came out brandishing a handgun, semi-automatic handgun, and a semi-automatic AK-47. As you can see in this picture, the marchers, who just were simply chanting their chants and singing their songs, were instructed not to engage with this couple, and yet the couple took it upon themselves to engage with these marchers. It's a wonder nobody was killed. This, my friends, is blatant racism. This is systemic racism on full display. Now, before you get all wound up, I am not talking about any political party, although both political parties are connected to this and both of them have egg on their face. This isn't politics. Nor am I talking anything about the right to bear arms. If you think that I'm doing that, you're wrong. Nor am I talking about the right to stand your ground, which is the law that this couple is hiding behind. I'm not talking about that either. This is racism, pure and simple. Why? Because in our society, some people would say that any group of black people gathered together is to be feared, is to be distrusted, is to be defended against. They must all be up to no good. That's what this is, pure and simple. It is nothing other than that. When they were asked initially, they said, why'd you do it? They said, well, they were threatening us. Well, there's all kinds of video evidence that shows that that just plain wasn't the case. They were threatening our property. No, they weren't. They were threatening our neighborhood. No, they weren't. Finally, they said, they were threatening our way of life. Well, I'll talk about that way of life as we go through. But to wave a loaded gun in somebody's face is not helpful. Matter of fact, what's, 
How much easier would it have been? If you're in your home and a bunch of people walk by your house that you don't know them and you, you, you quite don't understand them, and how hard is it to not just simply walk down to the end of your driveway and ask another human being a simple question like, what's going on? The answer would have been very easy. The answer likely heard would have been, we're marching to the mayor's house, and that would have then provoked a really easy response, namely, okay, have a nice day, and the whole thing would have been over, right? It would not have been that hard. But again, to wave a pistol in somebody's face, what danger that was. And it's just plain wrong. Now, my initial reaction obviously was one of anger. Who are these people? Why do they think they should do that? The longer I sit with this, though, the more I just plain feel sorry for them. I pity them. I do. I pity them. Because records show that these are angry people. I mean, how filled with hate must you be? To have that be your response to somebody walking through. And these people, they have a long history Records show that they have sued multiple business associates. They have sued the neighborhood association that they claim to love so much and want to defend. They have actually pulled firearms on neighbors who've walked through and cut through their land. Right? How hate-filled must they be? And now they've been charged with a crime because, go figure, in St. Louis you can't wave a loaded gun in somebody's face if you're not being provoked. And again, all video evidence shows that no one provoked them. And yet, I don't think that's the best idea. Because now it just has made them victimized. And they're not the victims. They were the aggressors. But I feel sorry for them also. On the simple level that I do lots of funerals. We call them celebrations of life. And when I seek to prepare for celebrating somebody's life, I think to myself, what's the most enduring image that they have? How are people going to remember them? What is going to live beyond them? You know, I feel sorry for these folks because no one wants to be judged by the worst choice they've ever made in their life. And yet these folks will. Because no matter where they go, no matter what they do, the people who know them, friends, family, others, this will be her enduring image. No one is ever going to be able to unsee that. And sorry, that's just plain sad, right? Now part of this is not their fault. Strange as it is to say. This is systemic racism on display. Research shows that children at the age of three can articulate the difference in race between other children. Here's what's quite interesting, though, about our culture as America. Because anything that's different in our culture, we teach children to be suspect of, to question, to fear, and to defend ourselves from. Children are naturally curious, and we've talked about this over the years in previous worship series. Kids are curious, and they want to ask questions. We wring that all out of our kids at a very young age. Be fearful of anything that's different. And so again, any group that's not from our neighborhood, that's not of our same socioeconomic background, who is a different race, who has a different lifestyle, we are going to fear, we are going to defend, even at the risk of accidentally taking a life. <laughs> 
And they talked about, well, we're defending our way of life. That is the American life, folks. This is the American dream. They've ridden their American dream all the way to Lonelyville because that is the American dream. Make more money, get more stuff, get bigger places, and then you gotta protect the big place and the big stuff. So then you build more fences, build more walls, build more gates, until eventually you're stuck there. These people, their home, their castle, and believe me, they live in a castle. Their castle is their prison. Their greed holds them captive and they fail to realize just simply how foolish they look. And this is exactly what our text is talking about. So I want to encourage you to open up to Luke. It's called the parable of the rich fool, about how foolish we can look. And it's really interesting. So the, the context of this lesson, and we're going to be talking about some of the most famous things that Jesus says. And in this text, much like last week, the famous thing is in there, but there's even more famous things on the other side. So we're going to look at more than just the text that you heard read. But the text is Jesus is kind of walking down the street with a, grant, with a group of people, marching, if you will. And he's walking down the street. And some guy yells out from the crowd, a young kid says, tell my brother to divide the estate so I can get half. Well, Jesus um, says, who made me your arbiter? Which is kind of interesting, because if he had been a recognized rabbi, he could have been, but it almost begs the question like, oh, this out-of-town guy, you want to make this decision, because you've probably already been told no. But Jesus tries to make it up to him, he calls him friend, which is kind of unusual also. But basically what the young guy was asking for was uh, payday lending, right? Dad's not dead yet, but he's old. Brother is older than me, owns all the stuff, he'll get it, divide, and dad's not dead yet, but divide all the stuff so I can get cash now. That's essentially what he was saying. And of course, Jesus wasn't too thrilled with that idea. So he tells him a parable about, uh, and well, and the word actually he uses before that is horao. So he uses this word that actually means beware or look out. It actually is, the root of the word is to see, and it means more than just seeing with the eyes, it means like, I see. And what he is saying is, figure it out. <laughs> figure it out, young man. Because this guy in the parable has made all of his wealth and he's made it all under legitimate, um, in legitimate ways. And what's he do? He builds himself bigger barns, he has more stuff, and all for naught, because he dies young, right? And he's called a fool for having done that. You see, the, uh, the then parable ends, and Jesus goes on then to say some really wonderful things. He says um, at the end, so it is with those who store treasures by themselves and not rich towards God. And then he goes on to say, don't worry about your life. Think of the birds of the air, or the lilies in the field, who, when all in community, all together, are absolutely stunningly beautiful, right? And so then he says in verse 31, strive for his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well, right? We normally hear that as seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
And then he goes on and says um, more about storing up treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And these, <laughs> these phrases are some of the most famous that we have in all of the Bible. Essentially, all of what Jesus is talking about is what's called avarice. Avarice is not just greed, but it is greed gone wild. It is insatiable need for more and more and more. And what's the problem with that? It basically hedges out everybody else, and it hedges out God. And that's what we see in our world today. That's what we saw on June 28th. The egocentricity of greed. The egocentricity of greed bankrupts our relationships with others and bankrupts our relationship with God. I have had the privilege of knowing people in all kinds of stations of life, <laughs> you know, from the poorest of the poor in Tanzania who live on less than a dollar a day to some really wealthy folks. And years ago, um, there was a, a wealthy man in this town who has since moved away and he came to me and asked if I would partnership in ministry beyond the church and he and I partnered together for about a dozen years doing this ministry. And he gained his wealth quickly and he became a mentor and a friend to me because he always was so clear and driven about making sure that he put God first. And in the conversation about wealth, he once said to me a line that I've shared before with you that just so strikes at my heart. He says, you know what? The sandbox gets small in a hurry. And it does. Because when you are wealthy, you never are certain if anybody really cares about you or if they just want a slice of the pie that you have. And again, this is our American dream. The more we have, literally, the more isolated we become. And life becomes very lonely. Now in this book, Dr. Murthy talks about, in the book Together, he talks about um, the history of loneliness and um, where it all kind of came from. He believes loneliness to be one of the greatest social ills in the United States and I kind of believe him but are you aware that in the 2,000 years of recorded history that loneliness is actually a fairly new concept? Are you aware of that? The first person who talked about anything akin to loneliness was Shakespeare, one of the world's great writers, and it was in the mid-1500s. He didn't say loneliness per se, he talked about oneliness. And he didn't talk about it as a bad thing, but he said um, that one can be by themselves and it was almost like a, an invitation to solitude. That was in the middle of the 1500s. In 1624, John Donne wrote that famous line that has endured over these last 500 years in which he said that um, no man is an island unto himself. In 1667, John Milton, in his famous book, Paradise Lost, was the first really to talk about loneliness, and he ascribed it as something that is of the devil. It's associated with Satan. Isn't that interesting, that the whole concept of loneliness is new, and its origins are connected to Satan? Murthy also then points to um, Dr. Faye Bound Alberti. She wrote a book called A Biography of Loneliness. And she goes through our Judeo-Christian history and then the history of where loneliness came from. And one interesting thing for us as Christians is that there was no 
never any concept of loneliness at all in our history. Matter of fact, if you tried to explain what loneliness was to somebody um, back then, they wouldn't have ever had a concept of it. Why? Because you were always so connected to your community and even when you were by yourself physically, God was always so present and so near that there was never any understanding of loneliness. It's only the elites like Shakespeare and Milton and Don who kind of crafted this understanding of loneliness. So loneliness has actually always been connected to wealth. 200 years after Milton wrote, well then Charles Darwin wrote about the survival of the fittest which then pits individuals against each other I'm against you if I'm going to survive. That then coupled with industrialization in the early 1900s in which there was mass migration from country communities and families to an urbanized setting in which people lived by themselves in crowded areas but felt so alone because they couldn't figure out this new way of life. And now we have this culture of loneliness, all of which is connected to our desire to make money. This is what Dr. Alberti says. The pursuit of individual wealth has become its own kind of religion. The pursuit of individual wealth has become its own kind of religion. And there you have it. We have landed exactly where Jesus told us we needed not to be and where he warned us, beware not to land here. Well, it seems very counterintuitive to talk about finances on the week in which Husker sports has been canceled for the fall. Everybody's worried about the economic impact of that, and I I certainly get that. But the one thing that we can say about the pandemic, it is values clarification. It has clarified our values with regard to such things, right? Whether you realize it or not, it has. Because why? We race and chase and hurry so that we can get more stuff, have more stuff, build these beautiful homes where we can be inside. If I can only just be inside with my stuff, everything would be great. We've had nine months of that. How's it going? We're miserable. What the pandemic has taught us is that all of our stuff doesn't make us feel any better. It is being in relationship with one another and having faith in our God, these are the things that matter the most. Community relationships are far more important than what we have or how much we spend. I'll leave you with another story from Dr. Murthy. Story about a man named James. Early on in his career, and Dr. Murthy met a guy, and he only met him once, and he was a young doctor, and it was interesting. The guy came in, he had a really sour countenance, he was clearly unhappy with life, and he had a variety of medical issues. And in the midst of Dr. Murthy having conversation with him, talking to him about what was going on in his life, James threw in just a, just a small phrase, I should have never won the lottery. Dr. Murthy paused, and he started asking him about his life story. Well, here was the deal. The guy was middle-aged, never married, but he was, um, he was happy. He was a baker in, in an urban area of Boston. He had throngs of customers who loved what he did. He had a boss who admired him. He had a community on the staff that felt like family to him. He was happy as could be. And then he played the lottery and he won. And he did what our world taught him to do what that expectation should have been. 
Namely, is he quit his job, bought a big house in a seaside community with walls and gates and all kinds of room, and he went in there and he was miserable. Gained weight, became obese, high blood pressure, diabetes, and basically depression. And this is what he said to Dr. Murthy. I traded in my friends and a job I loved and moved to a neighborhood where people keep to themselves in their giant homes. It's lonely. All that we have can mean nothing. And our pursuit for those things, well, that can turn into our religion. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it has taught us that we need each other. And we simply need to put relationships and God before anything else. Don't be a fool. Seek first the kingdom of God and you will have everything that you need. Amen.